Let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 John. 1 John. There are four Johns in the New Testament. There's the Gospel of John. We're not going to the Gospel of John. We're going to go a little bit further, a little bit deeper into the New Testament until you find 1 John or 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. There's three of them, back to back to back. These continue the same writings that we have in the Apostle John in the Gospels, but here we have a smaller letter, and we want to look at one particular verse in chapter 3. First John chapter 3, and I want you to find verse number 2, please. The Bible says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. I'm going to read the verse once more, and I want you to really direct your attention to it. Beloved, now we are children of God. Right now, we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him. Think of it. We shall see him as he is. We've come this morning to the concluding sermon in our series this December on the history of Christmas. And we've put the emphasis on the HIS, the his, the history, history of Christmas, because that's what Christmas is. Christmas is is his story. It is the story of how God saves sinners through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Our series several weeks ago began where the story begins. At the very beginning, the book of Genesis, God created this world as we know it today. He created it in perfection, including the first man and woman. But because Adam and Eve's failure to trust God and his plan, they sinned against him. And as a result of their sin, everything in the world changed. Sin and its consequences were now a part of the world. But God had a plan. And that plan involved destroying the works of Satan who tempted Adam and Eve to question God and to disobey him. God said, I will come, and I will come to destroy Satan. And upon doing so, he will also destroy sin. In fact, in the Garden of Eden, God said to Satan in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That was the promise that we studied in depth It was a promise made. God will provide an answer, an answer who will be a victor, a victor over sin 
and a victor over Satan. And that victor, he says in Genesis 3, will one day come from the seed of the woman. So Christmas began in the Garden of Eden. God made a promise to send a Savior for sin. Adam and Eve sinned against God, and because of their sin, sin was passed down to every man, every woman who has ever lived. And then we looked at the unfolding story of the Old Testament and how that everything in the Bible is just one big story of how God fulfilled the promise that he made in Genesis chapter 3. It's a reminder that the Bible is a book about Jesus. It's not a book about you. It's not a book about me. It's a book about Jesus, the story of how God saves sinners by giving to us Jesus Christ. And so when we journey through the scriptures, we see the story of Jesus unfolding right before us and how God orchestrated all of humanity to bring Christ into the world. It's not a story just about Noah and his ark or Abraham and his many children or David and his defeating Goliath. These are not isolated stories of heroism. No, these are stories that show us how that God sovereignly, providentially orchestrated all of the world to fulfill the promise that he made in the Garden of Eden, that a Savior would come. He is pictured in all the stories. He is predicted in all the prophecies. And we looked at that very closely. Last week, on the Sunday before Christmas, we opened up to the familiar passage of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 2, and we saw the promise fulfilled Christmas Day. 4,000 years after mankind's fall in the Garden of Eden and God's promise to provide an answer, that promise was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. The promise fulfilled. The Savior had come. The people rejoiced. In the little town of Bethlehem, through the providence of God, Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. In a stable, in a cave. It was certainly not in no comfortable place. He was laid in a manger. The angels came and they announced his birth to the shepherds, the lowliest of society to which they ran in haste to find the baby who was born. And there they rejoiced and they worshipped. The angels rejoiced and they worshipped. Everybody rejoiced and they worshipped, for the promise had been fulfilled. Jesus was here, Emmanuel, God with us. Yes, the God who had been silent for hundreds of years. The God who had been prophesied 4,000 years would come back to earth to dwell with people again. He is here. He has come. Jesus is God, Emmanuel. Of course, the story of God saving sinners does not end with Christmas. And if we are not careful, we will treat such a season as this and just terms of sentimentality will begin this week packing up our Christmas stuff. Maybe some of you leave it out all year round. Got a few neighbors who do so. But may we not forget that as we box up the lights, as we put away the gifts, as we begin a new year and all of this comes down, that God saving sinners doesn't end with Christmas. 
If it did, then all we have to see this morning is, is just a baby. That's it. But that baby born in Bethlehem grew. He grew up just like any other human life. I was thinking about that this week and imagining what it must have been like to raise Jesus. And some of you moms and dads feel an immense amount of pressure in raising the child that you do have or the children that you do have or perhaps the children that's coming that you don't know is coming this year. The pressure, the, the responsibility, i got to do everything just right. Can you imagine Mary and Joseph? I, I had even a little personal moment in reflecting on Joseph this week. I never thought about this before, but now that it's real and a reality in my own life, I began to think about Joseph understanding what it was like to be an adoptive father, to raise a child that did not come from him. Imagine the pressure, because this is, this is not just, just any child to raise. This is Emmanuel. This is, this is, this is God. Now, the Bible says that he made himself subject to his parents. So some of the things that you and I have to deal with, I'm sure Mary and Joseph did not. We know that they did not. But regardless of that, I'm sure Joseph and Mary felt pressure. And insecurity in this responsibility. Do, do you think Mary or Joseph ever pulled Jesus around as a little toddler and said, Are we doing this right? <laughs> he grew just like any child grew. And he came to this earth because he was here for a mission, not just to be adored in a cradle. Everybody wants to see the baby, right? Reminds me of that Seinfeld episode. Do you want to see the baby? And we all give the same responses, right? Oh, he's a beautiful baby, but we're thinking our minds is the ugliest baby I've ever seen in my life. Come, you got to see the baby. But Jesus didn't come to be adored as just a baby. He came to grow up. He came to this earth for a mission. And he told us what that mission was. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And at the age of 30, his ministry began. For three and a half years, Jesus taught. He performed miracles. He, he trained disciples. He did this all robed in human flesh while at the same time still remaining God. And it was his perfection as a human being, that qualified him to pay sin's penalty and to remove the divine wrath that was on our sin. No other man could do what Jesus did. For every breath he breathed, it was sinless. All of those years living as a babe, they were sinless years. And at the age of 33, he died. He was crucified on a cross. But just like the cradle, the cradle's not the end of the story. The cross is not the end of the story. 
Three days after his death, he victoriously arose from the grave to put the exclamation point on his victory. And this is what it meant when God told Satan in the Garden of Eden that that the seed of the woman is going to come and he's going to crush your head. Everything Satan has been doing in the history of the world is to try to stop that from happening. He tried to stop his birth, but he could not. He tried to stop him as the sinless one, but he could not. He tried to stop his crucifixion, but he could not. He tried to stop his resurrection, but he could not. All of that, the whole story works together to crush Satan, to destroy the serpent. To bring victory in our lives over sin. A victory that we could never win on our own. Forty days after his resurrection. As he remained on this earth in that period of time. He gathered with about 500 believers on a mountain in Galilee. And there, while they gathered, he ascended back into heaven from whence he came. When we open up the book of Acts, we see this unfolding. Acts chapter 1, I want to read a couple of these verses to you. Acts 1, 9 says, now when he, Jesus, had spoken these things. Let me stop right here and say, Jesus had gathered these 500 and he's speaking to them. He's speaking to them. He's telling them some final words before he ascends back into heaven. Three things in particular that he told them. You can read about them in Acts chapter 1. He he told them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Wait. Think about that, friend. Whatever it is you're going through, one of the final things that Jesus said to do was to wait. Was to wait. Be patient. For the Holy Spirit will come. And he will indwell you. Until that day, you pray and you wait. You pray and you wait. So he told them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. The second thing he told them before he ascended up into heaven was that it was not for them to determine the times and the seasons. It was one of the final questions they asked. Lord, we we hear what you're saying about you coming back, but when are you going to come back and set up that kingdom? And he looks at them and says, it's not for you to know. I think that would do a lot of us some good to remember this morning. That it's not for you or to me to know the times and the seasons. So many Christians get distracted by prophecy, trying to figure it all out. If God wanted you to know it, he would have told it to you clearly. He doesn't want you to be confused by such things or confounded by it. Because when you are, when you are, when you're fixated on the times and the seasons, you know what you do? You start thinking the vaccine is the mark of the beast. Let us be reminded what Jesus said. It's not for you to figure out. It's not for you to know what time it is. It's not for you to know what season we're in. Wait, pray, watch. And then he told them a third thing. Go to the world and be a witness of me. That's what you're supposed to be focused on. Go to the world and be a witness to me. You you let the coming back be my problem to deal with. 
You just be a witness, be a witness, be a witness. Go, go. So Jesus spoke those things to them. And after he had spoken those things, while they watched him, he was taken up access. He was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, the old two men stood by them in white apparel also who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? You ever thought about what that would look like? Just drool coming down your face like, what in the world's going on? Why, why do you keep standing here? Why are you, why are you looking up into heaven? This, this same Jesus, yes, the same one that you see today, He's taken up from you into heaven. He will so come in like manner as you saw him go. This is the heart of what I want to share with you today. Because as we look back in celebration of the birth of Christ, his first coming, we also look forward in anticipation to the return of Christ. His second coming. Friend, Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, Here's what John tells us. We shall see him. We shall see him. Look at it there again in your text, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, when he comes again, we will be like him. Why? For we will see him. We will see him. And we will see him. As he is. The history of Christmas is still being written. Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, every eye will behold him. I jotted down a few things from verse 2. Here's the first thing I, I jotted down. The wonder of who we are now. The wonder of who we are now, verse 2, look at it. Beloved, now we are children of God. Now we are children of God. John is captivated by this thought. He says, I am a child of God. This is my identity. It's not just my identity. He says, it's all of our identities. Beloved, those of you who are in Christ, we are children of God. This is our identity, and it's our identity right now. It's not something we will be one day. No, no, it's who we are right now. And John underscores for us how it is that any one of us become children of God. Look at it there in verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. We are children of God because of the love of the Father. He loves you. A love that He has bestowed upon you. Isn't that what it says in verse 1? Beloved, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed. It means He has given to us. Look, look, consider it. Consider how much He loves you. Look at the way He has loved you and the way He has given His love to you. And He uses that word behold there in verse 1. Behold this. Look at this. Look and see how much God loves you. 
By the way, let me underscore for us that this is not a love that we have ever earned. It is a love that He has freely given to us. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given, has given to you. He has given, He's bestowed this upon you. He is free. He's not been coerced to love you. You've not earned His love. Nothing you could ever do or not do would ever affect that. God loves you, period. Wow. Isn't this a wonderful thought? The manner of God's love to me, something I could never earn. You know why that's such a wonderful thought? Because it goes against our nature. Our nature is to think we have to earn someone's love. We have to earn their admiration, their affection. No, no, no. If it was about our merit system, we've done everything undeserving of God's love. His love is marvelous. It's measureless. It's it's impossible to articulate in any human language. It's like trying to measure the contents of the ocean with a coffee cup. You can't do it. The, The manner of His love for us is far greater than our minds can comprehend. Think of this. His love created us out of nothing. His love provided Himself as a babe in a manger who was the answer for our sins even when we rebelled against Him. His love nailed him to a cross as he bore our shame, as he bore our agony, our sin. His love, it resurrected him from the dead as he secured our redemption and adoption into his family. Brothers and sisters, listen to me this morning. We who believe on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are right now and forevermore his children because he loves us. It is an amazing wonder to consider who we are in Christ because of His great love for us. Who are you? Who am I? I'm a child of God. You are a child of God. May we never lose the wonder of this. I admit to you when I'm faced with worries and problems, I fail to see this as I ought to. That I, am, that I am His child, and as His child, nothing I ever face can separate me from Him. I think oftentimes when I feel the, 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 the pressures of life on me, the struggles, the weakness, the, weakness the, the, the brokenness, the trials, there's a, there's a feeling in which that you forget how much He loves you. You feel far away from him. You feel as if he is is mad at you. But it's in those moments that we need to remind ourselves who we are. We we are his children. I I am his child. And that's, this is what John is saying. Beloved, now we are the children of God. Right now. Think of it. 
Who am I as his child? I, I am accepted. I am redeemed. I am regenerated. I'm justified. I'm adopted. I'm loved. I'm, I'm forgiven. And I will never be forsaken. That's who I am as his child. And John says, you who are born again, you who believe on the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are children of God right now. Right now. And it's God's forgiveness of our sins in Jesus that makes us children of God. You know, this is the message of Christmas. This is why we celebrate it. He has come to make us His children. It's the wonder of who we are now. Children of God. I wrote down number two here, the mystery of what we shall be. The wonder of who we are now. I'm a child of God. Christmas is about Jesus coming to make me his child. That is a wonderful, marvelous, measureless thought. I am a son of God. You are a child of God. But but what about what we will be? The mystery of what we will be. Look at it again in verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. All right? In other words, John says, we are right now children of God. Right now. We know that. We are sons and daughters of the King. Children of God. But all the implications of what that will mean for us when we get to heaven, well, that's not fully realized in this life. We can't fully grasp the significance of what it is to be a child of God. It's it's a mystery. I mean, we know who we are because of what the Bible tells us. But what we shall be, what what, what that will mean in the future, the the implications of that when we get to heaven, we, 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 we can't understand that. We can't put all of that together. It's a mystery. Now, we may not know the fullness of what it means to be a child of God in eternity, but there is something that we do know. Verse 2 says, It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. Now, we, we, we don't know all the implications of what it means to be a child of God when we when we get to heaven but we do know this we do know he's coming back and when he comes back we will be like him we we know that much Uh, Richard Baxter the great Puritan said my knowledge of that life is small speaking of eternity what it's going to be like in heaven My, my knowledge of that life is small the eye of faith is dim but tis enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be like him. We shall be like him, John says. Like him. The Greek language has two primary words to describe likeness. One word describes likeness as in uh, number, size, or weight. The other word describes likeness as similarities in characteristic. It's the second word here, the similarities, the, the characteristics that, that, that John is using in 1 John 3, 2. 
For in one sense, we will never be like Jesus because Jesus is divine. He is God in human flesh. And when we get to heaven, we're not going to become little gods. So in that sense, we'll we'll never be like Jesus. But we will be like him in likeness and similarity and characteristics. We will be like him in spirit. We will be like him in righteousness. This is why God has saved us. God did not save us just just to give us a release from hell. It's so much more than that. God did not save us just to build us a home in heaven. It's so much more than that. The reason why God saved us was to make us like His Son, to make us like Jesus. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He foreknew us, he predestined us, and he predestined us to be like Jesus, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. He wants us to think like Jesus. That's why he saved us. He, he saved you to think like Jesus, to talk like Jesus, to act like Jesus. Every day of our lives, even now, God is conforming us to be like Jesus. That's not always an easy process. It's a painful one. God has to do a lot of purging in our lives. Sometimes he sends us through seasons of triumph that make us like Christ. But then there are many times he has to send us through seasons of suffering that makes us like Christ. It's not a joyous experience. It's it's filled with a lot of pain, a lot of brokenness. We think about it in the lives of Old Testament characters throughout the Bible. I, I think about Jacob. Jacob always comes to mind. God had chosen Jacob. God's plan all along was for Jacob to be the leader of his people, to be the father of a great nation. But Jacob needed to become more like Jesus, and so he had to go through a, a humbling experience. A time in which he wrestled with God and God had to break him. God had to give him a limp, a suffering, in order to be more like Jesus, in order to think like Jesus and act like Jesus and behave like Jesus and talk like Jesus. This is what God is doing in your life and in mine. Everything that happens to us, God is using using it to make us like Jesus. This is why he saved us. So we don't need to be surprised as saved people when these conflicts come. This is a part of his purpose. It's a part of his plan to break us, to purge us, to mold us into the image of his son. And that work is yet to be completed. It will not be completed in this life. In other words, we're going to keep going through this whole process until Jesus comes again. But when he comes again... It will be completed. The work will be perfected. 
the job will be finished. Philippians chapter 3 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things. I've often thought about what that completed work is going to be like in my own life. You know, what does my glorified body, perfectly righteous like Jesus, look like? You ever thought about what your glorified body is going to look like? You know, some of you might have a little more hair as a glorified body. Some of us might be a little bit more thinner, a little bit more muscular. I don't know. How will we talk in glorified bodies? How will we be able to hear those of us who are hard of hearing now? Our, our memories lapse in this life, but in a glorified body, we'll be able to remember where we put the keys. I don't know what it's all going to be like, but what I do know, what I do know is that our heavenly bodies will no longer be broken. Our heavenly bodies will not be burdened as our earthly bodies are now. No, there our bodies will be glorified. No more suffering. Our character will be purified. No more sin. And our hearts will be satisfied. We will reach complete maturity. It's the mystery. It's a mystery of what we shall be. But we do know this. We will be like him. No more suffering. No more sin. No more longing hearts. When I look in the mirror, I don't always like what I see. When you look up here on Sundays, you don't always like what you see. And I don't know what I will fully be in heaven. But I know that I will be like him. Like him. And, and here's the third thing, and this is where we're going to close this morning. We see the wonder of who we are now. We're children of God. And the folks you work with when you walk in the office tomorrow or the next time you go back to work, they may, they may not see you as a child of the king, but you know that's who you are. And you know that God knows that's who you are. And friends in school, the family members that you've yet to gather with and open presence with, they might just see you as the annoying cousin you grew up with. But you know who you are. And it's a wonderful thought. I am a child of God right now, right now. The mystery of what we shall be. We, we don't know how that's all going to look in the future. But we do know, we do know that when he comes back, we're going to be just like him. No suffering, no sin, no aching hearts. Here's the third thing I wrote down. The hope of who we shall see. The hope of who we shall see. All of this is brought together in this hope that we have that we will see Jesus again. 
Look at it in verse 2. When he is revealed, that is, when Jesus comes again, we will be like him, for we shall see him. We will see him, and we will see him as he is. You see, that's the thing about the Christmas celebration. We didn't get to see Jesus in Bethlehem. We can only imagine in our minds what that baby looked like. What that setting was. We, we weren't in the manger. We weren't by the roadside. We, we didn't get to see this come before us. We, we didn't get to see him grow up in Nazareth. We didn't get to see him perform miracles in Galilee or suffer our death on Calvary. Our eyes did not see him as those hundreds gathered on the mountain when he ascended back into heaven after his resurrection. In fact, none of us have ever seen him not with our earthly eyes but this friend is guaranteed we will see him and we will see him when he comes again and guess what you'll see him just as plainly as you're seeing each other this morning just as real as the person is next to you, that's as clear as you will see Jesus. In fact, you can reach over right now and pinch the person next to you. That's how, that's how real and clear it's going to be. He's going to be right there with me. I will, I will see him. And friends, we know that he's coming again. We know that we will be like him. And we know that we will see him as he is. Not as he was. It's important. Now, I don't have the time to dive into all the doctrinal implications of this, but let me just illustrate it like this. We'll not see him as the helpless child in the manger. That's as he was. We will not see him in the agony of the garden of Gethsemane as he prayed with blood drushing down his face. Lord, let this cup pass from me. We will not see him as the tempted one in the desert when Satan is trying to convince Jesus to throw it all away. We will not see him hanging on a cross. We'll not see him as he was. We will see him as he is. The victorious one. We will see the same hands that were pierced. We'll see the same feet that walked on water. The same lips that preached the kingdom of God. The same head that wore a crown of thorns. We will see Jesus, the God-man, face to face, just as he is. We will look him in the eye. And he will look us in the eye. And there we will behold one another. We will see. Do you wish to see Jesus? Is your hope fixed in the day that you will behold him? My mind could not stop thinking about this truth this week. Seeing Jesus. I began to think about my sins. And they are many. 
begin to think about my weaknesses. And they are many. I, I began to meditate on how God has revealed so much brokenness in my life, even, even this year. Seeing things about myself that I've never seen. And it's a struggle. It's a struggle when you battle the same sins, when you're trying to work through the same weaknesses, when you feel so broken and helpless. How in the world am I going to get through this? We, t- we, we talk about hopelessness. And anyone who lives... In a body marred by sin and weakness and brokenness feels on a regular basis a feeling of hopelessness. If I could just get through this. But here's what I do know. That every ounce of my struggles in life will completely vanish the moment I see him. And that, my friends, is hope. It's the hope of seeing Jesus. Every sin will vanish. Every weakness will go away. Every broken part of my mind and my body will be perfectly healed when I see Jesus. And that is the hope that we have in looking for him to come again. I want us to close by considering verse 3. Think about this. Look at it as we close. Verse 3, chapter 3. First John, and everyone who has this hope in him. I'll stop right there. Everyone who has this hope in him. The hope of Christmas. The hope of Christ. The hope of salvation. The, the hope of his second coming. Everyone who has this hope in in him my question this morning is do you have this hope in Jesus is the hope of Christ in you or is the nativity just a a decoration in your life as you pack up all the stuff and put it away will Christ be forgotten For the next 11 months. Hope. Hope doesn't end in Bethlehem. Hope is alive today. And it is the fuel by which we live our lives focused on Jesus knowing that we could see him today. We could lay our very eyes on Jesus today should he choose to return. Tomorrow, if it be his will. A year from now, we don't know when he's coming again. But what we do know is that he is coming again. And we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We will see him. I've had the privilege to see a lot of famous people in my life 
Just the other day, we were out eating lunch together. Keegan was with me. We went to a barbecue restaurant downtown, and we sat down to order our food, and we looked over to the left, and I said, Keegan, there is Luke Keekley sitting right there. It was like our whole, our whole meal changed. We were, we were, we were looking at, at Luke Keekley, the best Carolina Panther to ever don the uniform, in my humble but accurate opinion. I've seen a couple presidents. Oh, what a, what a feeling to be able to say, I've seen. Oh, but it will not compare to the moment that we see Jesus. Will you see him? Do you have this hope? This is the history of Christmas. I beg you once more this morning, trust Jesus. Come to Jesus. Look to Him in the Word of God now so that you may see Him in the clouds then. (laughs) He is coming again. And every eye will behold Him. Thanks be to God that whatever's going on in your life today You can walk away this morning with the hope, I will see him. And every dark thing in my life will be made light. Every wrong thing will be made right. Every broken thing will be perfectly put back together when we see Jesus. Let's stand together, please.